0: Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 2.10, The Gloucester Petition. Throughout the months of June 1676, events in Virginia had moved from a simmering discontent to open rebellion. The Burgesses and the governor had reluctantly acquiesced to the demands of General Bacon and his men, mostly because they were at gunpoint and it was either do that or die. By the end of June, however, conditions outside of Jamestown meant that Bacon had to retreat from the Virginia capital. As soon as Bacon was gone, Berkeley dissolved the June Assembly. Back in Jamestown, Governor Berkeley and members of the Assembly were undoubtedly shaken by the events of the past month. Berkeley's power had been tested in every conceivable way, and beyond not playing Charles I to Bacon's Oliver Cromwell, or in other words, escaping the month with his head still attached to his shoulders, Berkeley had seen nothing but a devastating series of losses. The Indian attacks were a somewhat welcome reprieve for those inside of Jamestown, as it brought them time to breathe and reassess their position. I say somewhat because it is important to note that the attacks that drove Bacon out of town were not exactly out on the frontier. The attacks occurred about 30 miles away from Jamestown in New Kent. To give an idea of distance... New Kent is located about halfway between Jamestown and modern-day Richmond. If you recall from our last episode, Bacon was elected from Henrico County, which makes up the eastern half of Richmond. So, the attack in New Kent really is just smack dab in the middle of the Virginia colony. This is, of course, a huge concern to a lot of the members of the House of Burgesses, as their estates and plantations were suddenly in the line of fire. Either way, though, Nobody was sad to see Bacon and his men leave Jamestown. Yet, aside from crossing their fingers that Bacon would be killed fighting the Indians, they recognized that they were not at the end of the rebellion, but rather just experiencing a brief pause in the conflict. They all knew and fully expected that Bacon was going to be back and that they were going to have to deal with a self-appointed general. Both Bacon and Berkeley fully understood that they had not had their final encounter both men knew that the other was working diligently on a plan for what would go down the next time that they met. As it turns out, the Indian attack had been somewhat of a boon to both men. For Berkeley, the benefit was immediate. The crisis in New Kent drew Bacon and his men out of Jamestown before things took an even more radical turn. Berkeley remained the governor, and as I stated just a moment ago, had his head still firmly attached to his shoulders. Bacon, aware that Berkeley wasn't simply standing still, also found himself in a suddenly advantageous position. Well, likely disappointed his time in Jamestown ended so quickly, Bacon now found himself charged with raising an army to fight the Indians. Beyond that, however, this raid was not on some distant frontier, but right in the middle of the colony. This situation created strange bedfellows. Members of the House of Burgesses lived in the area where the Indians had attacked now it was their families that were facing potential mortal risk. Men who had just weeks before been signing acts, basically at the end of a sword, now found themselves begrudgingly giving men to Bacon to fight the Indian threat. Beyond that, these men were openly allowing Bacon to conscript men into service, as well as providing him with the supplies that he would need to carry out his mission. Well, Bacon was going to need to address the Indian threat, something he planned to do with nothing but pure brutality of that, He was also now allowed to raise an army. Everybody, of course, knew that this was a very risky move. Suddenly, Bacon wasn't going to be walking around with some pitchfork carrying rabble, but instead was going to be leading a bona fide army. This is a very tenuous situation for Berkeley and indeed the entire assembly. The primary objective then for both sides is going to be the recruitment of numbers to their individual cause. As Bacon moved county to county, the troops and weapons he took were for the defense of the colony against the common Indian threat. This was a cause that the people were generally willing to sign up for, knowing that their families and land were in constant danger from the threat of Indian incursion. However, it is important to note that not everybody here trusted Bacon, nor wanted, initially at least, to have anything to do with his actions in Jamestown. Despite that, however... There was really no misunderstanding what was going on here. The assumption was, and ultimately it was a correct assumption, was that the army being raised by Bacon was being done only under the pretense of fighting the Indians, and that what Bacon was really doing was building his revolutionary army. Bacon made his way throughout Virginia, seeking supplies and men. Among the men Bacon was able to recruit were servants and slaves. Not only did Bacon offer them an escape and some adventure in an otherwise hard and tedious life, but he also offered them hope for a future. This, however, did not come without controversy, as many of the smaller planters were not super thrilled with the idea of serving next to slaves. Likewise, Bacon was dealing with a serious concern from the small planters that as soon as they left to fight the Indians, and forces would just gobble up their land. So, there was serious hesitation to leave their land unprotected from both the Indians and the troops loyal to Governor Berkeley. Bacon was able to counter with the fact that the Indian threat directly affected them and that, regardless of their decision to fight or not, the Indians were going to come. Plus, he threw in the best motivator of all the promise of plunder. As Bacon grew his army, Berkeley knew that he had to respond. There was no doubt in Berkeley's mind that when the war ended, Bacon and his army was going to march on Jamestown. Of course, Berkeley was almost certainly correct about this. As I said a little bit ago, everybody was aware exactly where all of this was heading. Therefore, for Berkeley, he needed to move quickly and have his defenses ready. The last two episodes of this podcast have basically been a story of Berkeley making miscalculation after miscalculation. The guy seriously seems like he is just due to make a right call eventually. Berkeley turned his attention to attempting to recruit men from nearby Gloucester County. Gloucester County was the richest county of Virginia, and a place where Berkeley at least assumed he remained popular and the people loyal. And really, what better place for Berkeley to go attempt to turn around his luck? Sure, he had made a few mistakes along the way, but these were his people. Certainly, this couldn't be another mistake right? Unbeknownst at the time to the governor, he was about to make the miscalculation of all miscalculations. Seriously, this is going to be akin to somebody making the preseason pick of the 2017 Cleveland Browns to win the Super Bowl, right before they went 0-16. So, what went so south in Gloucester County? Gloucester County, on the surface, was not going to be a place where you would expect to find a lot of supporters for bacon. Located across the York River from modern-day Williamsburg, Gloucester County was largely made up of those who had supported Berkeley and in turn had turned a huge profit. Following the attack on New Kent, basically everybody throughout Virginia accepted the Indian threat was very real and was something that needed to be dealt with. However, responding to the threat posed from the Indians and siding with the rebel Bacon were not necessarily synonymous with each other, despite Bacon's attempts to make it so. In Gloucester County, this is going to ring true. The men there realized and agreed that there was an Indian problem and that a response was required. However, at least for now, they were not wanting to become part of a rebel army against Berkeley. The county, therefore, had decided to take a third road. Under the command of Lawrence Smith and Thomas Hawkins, and don't worry about their names, they're not going to be on the test, Gloucester was preparing for its own expedition against the Indians. They raised men, gathered weapons, and prepared for battle. They were willing to deal with the Indian threat, but they were going to do so without the need of General Bacon. The first problem, however, came in July when Bacon arrived in Gloucester County. He was intent on gathering men and ammunition. After all, he had been granted the commission to do just this, and he was an officer and this is what officers did. Bacon came in, collected weapons and goods, much to the chagrin of Hawkins and Smith, as well as several men who went off to fight with him. Though deeply concerned about the potential dangers, the citizens of Gloucester County very reluctantly agreed to obey the governor's commission, because it ultimately was a commission from the governor himself. As soon as Bacon was gone, Robert Beverly and Philip Ludwell wrote what would become known as the Gloucester Petition. Both Beverly and Ludwell were staunchly loyal to Governor Berkeley, and were anxious to bring the rebel Bacon to heel. The petition was signed on behalf of the inhabitants of the county and issued a plea to Governor Berkeley for help. Their petition detailed their woes and the fact that the rebel Bacon had stolen their weapons and men and treated them with deplorable amounts of disrespect. All of this makes perfect sense. These are the supporters of Governor Berkeley, and they certainly weren't going to be thrilled about having their goods commandeered by Bacon and his men or their farmhands taken away, especially considering that they must have felt as though they were complying. Recall that they were at least trying to raise an independent force to deal with the Indian threat in New Kent. When the Gloucester petition arrived in Jamestown, Governor Berkeley must have felt pretty good to be reminded that he did have some friends out there. Berkeley recognized this as an opportunity to strike back against Bacon. If Berkeley could show Bacon to be nothing more than a thief, stealing from the good people of Virginia against their will he could start to hopefully erode at the popular support that Bacon had built for himself. Berkeley spent like two seconds responding back that Bacon had no commission, and that anything perceived to be a commission from him was done at gunpoint and was therefore void. Berkeley then immediately jumped on a horse and made his way out to Gloucester County, where he hoped he would be able to raise a force of his own to take down Bacon. Upon arrival, Berkeley was pleased with what he saw. People were loyal to him, and for the first time in what must have seemed like a while, he was among friendly faces. Berkeley's plan was to call the troops and then head out to confront Bacon. Initially, however, Berkeley doesn't say this. Instead, he claims that he wants to raise a force to go deal with the Indian threat. The citizens of Gloucester are okay with this, and in short time, Berkeley was at the head of some 1,200 men who were ready to go out and fight the Indians. So this is the part of today's episode where you are probably starting to wonder where this huge mistake is by Berkeley. I mean, here he is with 1,200 troops under his command. That is a pretty sizable force for 1670s Virginia. With his 1,200 troops mustered and ready to ride out to fight the Indians, Governor Berkeley goes ahead and makes that giant miscalculation that is going to totally shift the tides and leave him very literally isolated. Standing in front of what he believed to be his army, Governor Berkeley gave his command, go out, find Bacon's army, and attack them. For the men in the ranks, this was a moment where they all suddenly perked up and said, hey, wait a minute, what, what did he just say? The 1,200 men that Berkeley had under his command were there to fight the Indians. That's what they had been recruited to do, and that is what they were prepared to do. What they weren't ready for, and ultimately what they were unwilling to consider, is bringing arms against their fellow Virginians. They had no interest in becoming the leading wave of a civil war. Almost immediately upon learning what Berkeley had in mind for them, the army simply disbanded. They weren't going to fight a civil war, and they certainly were not going to be tricked into fighting Berkeley's war. The men picked up, turned around, and went back home. Some accounts say that as the men walked away, chants of bacon could be heard. For Governor Berkeley, this was nothing short of devastating. It was a complete disaster. In addition to now finding himself literally standing alone, deserted by his army, Berkeley had just changed the course of the war. On some alternative timeline out there, you can imagine a situation where Berkeley went out beats Bacon to the punch in dealing with the Indian threat and proves that the Virginia government still has the backs of the people. All of this would work towards eroding the popular support for Bacon as Berkeley would prove that he is still willing to defend the colony. Unfortunately for William Berkeley, that version of things never plays out. Instead, what does end up happening is the complete opposite. Berkeley had exposed himself as being weak. Men were unwilling to follow his orders or fight for him against the rebel Bacon. With the Indian threat looming, Berkeley's actions clearly state that he is more interested in dealing with his personal grudge against Bacon than he is about fighting the Indian menace and protecting the colony. Finally, he not just supported, but created a plan of action that would see Virginians killing Virginians. All the worst fears that Bacon's supporters had regarding Berkeley were in a single moment confirmed and worse. The governor was working against them and had no qualms sending their neighbors out to kill them. Bacon, upon learning about this, immediately recognized just how weak Berkeley was. There would not be a better time to strike. With that, Bacon and his men abandoned their campaign against the Pamunkey Indians, whom they had yet to find anyways. They turned around and marched back to confront and deal with Berkeley once and for all. It's important not to lose the much bigger point in all of this, as it says a whole lot about the state of the colonial leadership in July of 1676. When Berkeley had asked 1,200 men in Gloucester to come with him and take down the rebel Bacon, all he got was some uncomfortable muttering before the entire group collectively said, yeah, no bro, we're not going to be doing that today. Upon getting word of this challenge from Berkeley, Bacon made basically the same request of his men. Let's turn around and go deal with Governor Berkeley. The difference, however, is obvious. Berkeley was left standing alone. Bacon's men turned around and began to march back. Berkeley quickly realized that he had a massive problem. Besides the fact that the men had just left him standing there, he was likely instantly aware that Bacon wasn't going to simply brush this threat to the side. And indeed, he is right. Bacon is on his way. Berkeley's interest, therefore, likely turned quickly back to how to keep his head and his body as a single unit. Berkeley wasted no time getting out of Gloucester County. Along with a small group of loyalists, Berkeley fled the scene before Bacon could get there, stopping just long enough to pronounce Nathaniel Bacon to be an outlaw. Not that anybody was really listening, but hey, it's important to keep up appearances. Bacon by this point knew that his prospects in Virginia looked pretty good, at least in the short term. However, it is evident in his writings that he was still deeply concerned about the perception the English back across the Atlantic would have. Dealing with an angry governor, yeah, we've got that. Dealing with an angry king, however, was an entirely different matter altogether. In defense of his actions, Bacon would write in July 1676 that the main cause of all the commotion between him and Governor Berkeley was in relation to affairs with the Indians, Well, hinting that there might have been a little bit more to it than just that. More interestingly, Bacon makes clear in his writings that he is fighting this fight not because he is in opposition of the king, but rather he is fighting for the king. Berkeley had become corrupt and was putting the king's subjects' lives in danger. Bacon was just doing what was necessary to protect the king's subjects and ensure that Charles II's prerogatives in Virginia were being carried out properly. There are a few reasons why Bacon would take such a stance. However, the most obvious one is that he wants to do anything he can to pacify London from intervening. As I said, Bacon can deal with Berkeley and his followers. However, the prospect of actual English soldiers coming to Virginia to put down the rebellion? No thank you. Bacon wanted to be clear that he was at war with Berkeley, yes. But this guy is the bad guy and I'm just doing the king of service. And while we really have very little concept of what Bacon thought of Charles II, one thing is clear, he has zero interest in this being anything more than what it was. Bacon was not looking for independence from the crown, at least not quite yet. What Bacon was looking for was to escape from the petty tyranny of a corrupt local government. This wasn't an uprising against the English, it was an uprising against a single individual and his pack of followers. All of this comes together in the July 30th Declaration of the People of Virginia. Bacon wanted to make his position clear and leave no doubt as to the causes of what was happening. Of course, he paid lip service to the face reason for the rebellion, promising that he was still dedicated to destroying every single Indian that he saw. Beyond that, however, what Bacon issued was a widespread denunciation of Berkleyan policies. He denounced the taxation system that had so overwhelmed the colonists and brought attention to the fact that these taxes were levied under the false pretense of being for the public good. Berkeley and the small group of loyalists that stuck with him were able to escape from Gloucester alive. However, by this point, nowhere in Virginia was safe for them, forcing them to leave the colony altogether to regroup. This means that Virginia was now in the hands of Bacon. With the fighting at least done for the moment, Bacon had to turn his attention to actually running the colony. Gathering together on August 3rd, Bacon sat at the head of a convention that was assembled to establish a new government for Virginia. Most of the men now being tabbed to establish the new government were those that had been officers in Bacon's militia. In what would become known as the act of the Middle Plantation Convention, the new government laid out their grievances and their solutions. The first order of the day, however, was establishing their right to establish a government in the first place. Critically, the Bacon delegation had to establish that they were the legitimate government of Virginia. In order to accomplish this goal, they began by lambasting Berkeley. Immediately, they blamed him for the Civil War and claimed that by leaving Virginia, he had essentially abandoned his post and hence the government. So much as the declaration of the people of Virginia, this was another chance for Bacon to slam Berkeley. Bacon, understanding that even though Berkeley was currently off in hiding, he still did likely command a good deal of loyalty throughout the colony. Beyond those who openly supported Berkeley, it is a safe assumption that there were still plenty of others who would have seen Bacon as doing nothing more than throwing off the existing status quo that they had all grown accustomed to. Bacon had to ensure that those under him were people whom he could trust, and therefore he made the decision that all serving under him would have to take an oath of loyalty. Now, I'm not going to include the entire oath here, because honestly, it is surprisingly long. However, I will include the full text of it over on the website, should you want to read it yourself. However, as a quick summary, the first half of the oath is a denunciation of Berkeley, with the second half being a pledge of loyalty to General Bacon. Those pledges included things such as serving loyally and, if need be, joining an army of the common defense for the colony. For those who refused to take the oath, the order of the day was deportation from the colony. Now, as with every oath, it is critical to consider that there were plenty of people who would have just taken the oath, despite being more than happy to see Berkeley return and hang the rebel scum in a quote from the Berkeley loyalist George Jordan, It is better to plunder than be plundered. I think it is important to point out before we go any further that, despite Bacon's cries for reform to the tax system and making things more equitable, this should not be thought of as some kind of social revolution. We are still solidly 150 years away from the socialist movement of the 1800s, and even within that scope, Bacon was no socialist. Bacon absolutely believed in class distinctions. You would have seen no problem with people enriching themselves. His problem, rather, was that the government under Berkeley had taken things to such extremes that it put the colony itself in danger. Bacon fully believed that there were differences between the gentleman and the planter class. However, where the problems existed is that when the gentleman class gained all their wealth through the continued and crippling exploitation of that planter class. Bacon was totally fine with self-enrichment, but come on guys, cool it just a little bit. Well, Bacon still dutifully placed the fight against the Indians as the paramount objective in his rebellion. The second order of the day remained the lucrative art of wealth redistribution. So what does wealth redistribution in the age of Bacon's rebellion mean? Well, in this case, it literally often meant seizing the huge estates of those who had been loyal to Berkeley and then looting it to their heart's content. The biggest prize came on August the 8th, 1676. On that day, Berkeley's own estate at Green Springs was captured by Bacon's forces. Unsurprisingly, Berkeley was in control of the largest estate in Virginia, and now it was in the hands of Bacon and his men. The material wealth that hadn't been sent back to London with his wife was very quickly stripped out. As the summer of 1676 moved forward, the wildfire that was Bacon's rebellion threatened to spill out of Virginia and explode through the entire Chesapeake. Maryland planters had faced many of the same pressures that those in Virginia had faced. There were the same complaints over the unjust enrichment of the ruling class at the expense of the planters. There was danger on the frontiers from hostile Indians that was not being adequately addressed, as well as a growing general hopelessness from the planters. Like in Virginia, they increasingly were buckling under the oppressive tax structure. For them, looking to their south and seeing the success of General Bacon was putting equally revolutionary ideas in their mind. In Maryland, there were suddenly loud calls to reform the imperial system and to purge the corrupting forces. Well, things in Maryland were beginning to heat up, back in Virginia, Bacon was pressing his advantage. Sending his two best lieutenants, Giles Bland and William Carver, on a mission to capture Berkeley, Bacon was hoping to cut the head off, possibly literally, of the Berkeleyan forces. Unfortunately, this didn't actually go great for Giles or Carver. Despite the attempts to find the disgraced governor, they found themselves suddenly being captured by Berkeley loyalist Philip Ludwell. For Berkeley, this is basically the first good thing to happen to him in several months. With Bacon having to go off and fight the Indians in New Kent once again, Berkeley saw his chance for a comeback tour. Berkeley made the decision that he needed to return to Jamestown if he had any hope of regrouping. In order to do this, he decided that it was time to make some promises of his own. In exchange for help, Berkeley promised that those who rallied to his cause would be allowed to plunder those who had taken Bacon's oath. Which does admittedly make you question, if the guys who had signed off on the oath had plundered the supporters of Berkeley, were they now going to go back and steal back their own stuff? Anyway, though, plundering was going to be the order of the day in Virginia, regardless of who you supported. Also desperate for supporters, Berkeley went a step further. Berkeley promised the servants of the men who took Bacon's oath freedom if they turned their backs on their owners. This does bring up another very interesting problem for Berkeley. As it turns out, very few servants turned their backs and began flocking to the Berkeley camp. Sure, freedom was the prize. However, the cost of guessing wrong was probably going to be a more severe servitude, or very possibly death. As it turns out, despite the very generous offer, few servants saw Berkeley as being the winning horse in this race. Undeterred by the low turnout, Berkeley retook Jamestown on September 7, 1676. Things were looking dire for the governor, however. Few rallied back to his cause leaving him dangerously outnumbered in the capital. And despite the fact that Bacon was distracted by his battles with the Indians, Berkeley retaking Jamestown was not going to escape his attention for very long. Next time, we will pick up with Governor Berkeley having just retaken Jamestown. We will see how Bacon responds to that, and ultimately how these two men are going to battle over the colonial capital. Until then, I hope you all have a great two weeks. As always, I hope you are staying healthy and staying safe. I will see you back here then, and we will continue our journey through Bacon's Rebellion.